Georgia B. Barnhill is a leading and prolific expert in American print culture. A graduate of Wellesley College, Gigi became curator of graphic arts at the American Antiquarian Society in 1969, a position she would hold with, with distinction for four decades. During that time, she established the Society's Center for Historic American Visual Culture and served for several years as director of that center before she retired and became curator emerita in 2012. Her contributions to our understanding of American prints are too numerous to list in full. Indeed, when I did the fun test of typing her name into Google Books last night, I came up with 3,900 search results. <laughs> This means that she's not only written a lot, but what she's written has been cited often by other scholars. Having said that, I can't resist naming just a few titles because I know you'll be curious to read more after you hear her talk. I'll name Wild Impressions, The Adirondacks on Paper from 1995, The Athenaeum's Own Exhibition, which Gigi co-curated with Sally Peirce and Katharina Slaughterbach, Early American Lithography, Images to 1830 from 1997, The Bibliography on American Prints of the 17th through the 19th Centuries, an essential reference work first published in 2006, New Views of New England, Studies in Material and Visual Culture from 1680 to 1830, which she co-edited with Martha McNamara, McNamara for the Colonial Society of Massachusetts in 2012. I first met Gigi in 2010 when she spurred a collections sharing initiative between the American Antiquarian Society and the Mead Art Museum at Amherst College, of which I was then the director. In the years that followed, I was honored and delighted to have the opportunity to bring her expert eyes to bear on the Meads collection of prints, first in a faculty seminar that she led in 2013, and then in a special exhibition emerge, which emerged from those studies that she organized for Amherst in the following year, Paper Landscapes, Prints of the American City and Countryside, 1820 to 1920. Today, Gigi will be speaking about her important current exhibition at the Cape Ann Museum, to which the Boston Athenaeum has loaned several works, drawn from nature and on stone, the lithographs of Fitzhenry Lane. Please join me in welcoming Gigi Barnhill back to the Boston Athenaeum. Uh, what a lovely surprise to see such a full house. I'm absolutely staggered by this, and uh, thank you all for coming. What makes Fitzhenry Lane's lithographs so special? I kind of have been puzzling about this off and on, um, and I hope my comments will uh, help you oh, gain a little bit of connoisseurship or understand how curators look at prints and learn a little bit more about um, some of Lane's contemporaries here in Boston. I actually have said and written all I know about Lane in the catalog that the Cape Ann Museum published, and it didn't seem useful to just regurgitate that one more time. So anyway, this is what we're doing today. It's a pleasure to be here because the current exhibition at the Cape Ann Museum, drawn from nature and on stone, the lithographs of Fitzhenry Lane, could not have been mounted without the full support of the Boston Athenaeum, which lent a dozen prints to the show. The Athenaeum's collection of lithographs published in Boston was in large part the creation of Charles Mason, whom I remember fondly. During and after his lifetime, Sally Pierce made good use of these prints in the exhibitions she mounted before her retirement, and Katerina Slaughterback has followed in Sally's footsteps. The book they assembled, Boston Lithography, was at my right hand as I wrote my essay in the catalog published by the Cape Ann Museum. Published 20 years ago, Boston Lithography remains an essential reference work on the shelves of many curatorial offices and scholars. The Athenaeum's electronic catalog rec records for the prints and sheet music, many of which uh, you'll see today, 
also present a wealth of information, and for all of this, I am deeply grateful. And I also want to express my gratitude to Lizzie Barker and the trustees of the Athenaeum for approving the loan of the Prince, and to Katerina, who was so helpful in negotiating the loan and helping with my research and arranging also for the conservation of several prints from this collection. Uh, people who have seen the show always say how stunning it looks, and the reason it looks so wonderful is that so many institutions really paid attention to the physical conservation of their prints. And the show remains open until March 4th, should you wish to venture eastward to Gloucester. I think we should start with a brief introduction to the lithographic process. This innovative and even revolutionary means of re reproducing images developed in late 18th century Europe and eventually gave working and middle class consumers access to a wide range of images. The process enabled artists to draw their images directly on highly polished slabs of Bavarian limestone using a greasy crayon or ink, as you see in this rather idealistic view of a lithographer's workshop. So here is the artist drawing on stone. This workman is actually regraining the slabs of limestone so that um, they can be reused for another image. Here's a stone and uh, uh, some solution. This is probably the acid that the printer uses to fix the image on the stone before it's printed. And then back here is the printer uh, inking the slab of stone, and that's the specialized press that's used to print lithographs. The images were printed with great ease, and uh, after uh, after the image was affixed chemically, a good experienced printer could issue about 300 prints a day, which is a lot. Uh, earlier processes, particularly uh, intaglio processes, were much more labor intensive and uh, took much longer to print. And that's why the prices initially of lithographs were so much cheaper than engraved illustrations, engraved images. William and John Pendleton established the first really successful American lithography firm about 1825, and it's in this firm where Lane honed his innate artistic skills. As we shall see, the firm served the commercial needs of Boston and the entire region. They also enabled artists and amateurs to experiment with this new process that transformed printmaking. Uh, this is Rembrandt Peale's uh, famous portrait of George Washington, published about 1827. The stone in this case was drawn on stone in France, but printed here lithographically in the late 1820s. So professional artists like Peale came to use the premises, but also amateur artists such as Louisa Minot, who did this lovely view of the Kennebec River up in Maine. In this case, the stone, she had the stone in Maine, drew it there, brought the stone back to Boston, which is rather interesting. The exhibition at the Cape Ann Museum documents the early career of Gloucester's famous native son, Fitzhenry Lane. What makes him unusual is his transition from 15 years of commercial lithography to his justly celebrated success as one of the finest arts of the mid-19th century. Decades ago, E.P. Richardson noted the artist's ability to focus on, quote, the aerial poetry of space and light. Wayne Craven more recently described Lane's 1850 Boston Harbor at the Museum of Fine Arts as, quote, one of the great marine pictures of American art, unquote. And John Wilberding, the authority on Lane, described him in one essay as, quote, the preeminent marine painter of Boston and the northern New England shore. End quote. His prints, as we shall see, represent many genres and subjects. He eventually focused on town and harbor views um, as a graphic artist, a specialty in which he excelled and that led directly to his successful career as a painter. Was he unique and how is his reputation formed? Today I'd like to look at his work by several, a couple of his contemporaries in Boston comparing their work to his. 
Carl Crossman wrote in the 1980s that he believed that Lane was not unique in his work, only better. So we'll take a look. I'll begin by introducing you to some of Lane's fellow workers at the lithography shop managed by William S. Pendleton um, from 1825 to about 1835, and his successor, Thomas Moore, who remained in business until 1841. Quite a bit that we know about Lane's experiences with Pendleton and Thomas Moore is based on the memoirs of Benjamin Champney, who came to Boston in 1834 and served an apprenticeship in the shop. Of his own childhood, he wrote, quote, among the pleasantest and happiest hours I remember to have passed in my boyhood were those in company with my sister, Mary Jane. When left alone in the cabin, we had our stubs of pencils and scraps of paper, and there we scratched down whatever ideas came into our heads. For she, as well as myself, had a most ardent love for drawing and much imagination. Mary Jane sadly never lived to maturity, but Benjamin did. And his experiences and those of his sister were probably typical of his era. In his early teenage years, he, quote, devoted all his spare time to drawing, but without method. I had no models nor anything in the way of art to inspire me, and I made little or no progress. But at the age of 17 in 1834, Champney came to Boston, where he began working for a shoe dealer. The windows of the shop where he worked looked out into a courtyard. Across the space were the New England Banknote Company and the Pendleton Lithographic Company. Two of the workers befriended Champney, and one of them, Robert Cook, the chief draftsman, became his roommate and gave him drawing lessons. And what do we know of Robert Cook, who was Champney's mentor and teacher? Little is known of his origins. He's assumed to have been born in the United States about 1810, making him six years younger than Lane and seven years older than Champney. After serving an apprenticeship with William Pendleton, he replaced John Bufford as the chief draftsman about 1834 and remained in that position until 1839. Champney became an apprentice in the lithographic printing company operated by Pendleton 1834 and continued with Pendleton's successor. Also working steadily in both companies was Fitzhenry Lane, who arrived at Pendleton's in late 1832. His first Signed print is this one, Love Among the Roses. And I think we all instinctively think it's kind of silly and very sentimental, but um, early on, Pendleton brought French lithographers to Boston and sold French prints. They were technically proficient and brought to Boston advanced skills and techniques that they could introduce to the apprentices in the shop. This explains why the lithographs printed by Pendleton and Moore were, in fact, so well printed. This print was published by the Pendleton firm. In other words, they actually took financial responsibility for it. It's not job printing. And the artist, you can't possibly see it, but he only signed this print with his initials. But I think we all should note Lane's very careful draftsmanship as well as using a wide range of tones from light to dark. And not every artist did this. And I have a feeling that these French printers would have encouraged him to do so. So he made full use of the range in tones from dark to light and really did a wonderful job of drawing the very fine details that you see. In the early decades of the 19th century, art was not part of the school curriculum except for young women in elite families. One way that aspiring artists received training was in printmaking firms. And we know from the experience of an apprentice in a New York printing firm that apprentices perform such tasks as stacking firewood, sweeping the premises, hand coloring prints, polishing stones, preparing inks and crayons, among a multitude of other daily tasks. Later, these apprentices learned to draw on stone. At Pendleton's shop, some apprentices were capable draftsmen at the point they came in for training. Others became printers and established their own businesses. Although Lane's first extant work of art is a watercolor of the burning of, the, of a packet ship, and he became renowned for his marine artistry, he was, as we shall see, a jack of all trades, as were his peers. Given that Lane was crippled in childhood and arrived in Pendleton's shop at the advanced age of 28, he probably did not serve a standard multi-year apprenticeship. 
As a youth, he probably spent a great deal of time in the harbor, sketching boats, equipment, and the landscape. His father had been a sailmaker, and he would have been at home on the waterfront. He arrived in Boston as a self-taught draftsman and signed his first prints in 1833. The strength of his ability to draw is his key to success as a lithographer and, of course, later as a painter. Champney recalled that Lane excelled in depicting hotels and views, but didn't mention sentimental subjects. Champney wrote, he was accurate in his drawing, understood perspective and naval architecture perfectly, and was a good all-round draftsman. Champney's observations are, in a nutshell, what makes Lane's prints so special. His first important lithograph was this 1836 view of Gloucester. What does this image presage? First is his interest in light and clouds and the interplay of light and shadow on land and sea. This is a constant in his lithographs and in his later paintings. Also, he carefully re renders details of plant life and structures in the foreground. Surprisingly, the sh ships in the harbor do not dominate the scene. In later prints, he exploited his skill in naval architecture. Absent are human figures. Within a short period of time, however, Lane learned to incorporate them. People in the foreground give a sense of scale to a scene, particularly urban scenes. What is peculiar in this view is two focal points, the distant town and the foreground. And that's the result of taking a view from a high vantage point, a perspective that Lane wisely abandoned in favor of a lower one. Lane, in spite of his interest in coastal views, drew a pair of landscapes south of Worcester about 1837. The introduction of lithography made large format prints of landscape and urban views affordable to the public. Earlier views were engraved on metal, a process that required laborious inking of the plate before printing each impression under great pressure. Those prints were expensive. As I noted, lithography was a much simpler printing press, and the image drawn on stone also did not wear out, as did the grooves engraved on a metal plate. Millbury Village is a panoramic view demonstrating his interest in the clouds in the sky and broad sweeps of the landscape. All of the elements are well integrated, foreground, middle ground, and low hills beyond the village. As in Love Among the Roses, Lane's view features a wide range of tones from dark to light. Several years later came another landscape, a view of the battleground at Concord, Massachusetts. From contemporary evidence, we know that Lane drew the view from nature and presumably reproduced it on stone himself. It is, it's very accomplished, but what else was being produced at the same time? Robert Cook, one of his mentors, drew this view of Worcester on stone after a drawing by the Norwegian emigrant artist Peter Anderson about 1837. Cook, although a capable draftsman, failed to integrate elements of this urban view. I would assume that a draftsman copying a drawing or a watercolor on stone would improve, if necessary or possible, his source. Here, Cook failed to do so. The buildings seemed to float above the ground, and the trees on the hills on the left seem sort of like soldiers in a line. It's, the composition does not hold together very well. Oddly, another print he did several years later is equal to Lane's expertise doing landscapes. This is a, another landscape south of Worcester and is really quite beautiful, but drawn on stone by Cook. Peter Anderson also made and published a view of Washington, D.C., and this one Lane drew on stone for Thomas Moore. And if we can assume that Anderson's view of Worcester was rather awkward and unsuccessful, I would think, anyway, that his view of Washington would be in the same mode. However, this is um, really a beautiful uh, print. It's um, one of the widest of the lithographs produced at this time. It measures 36 inches in width. And it's neither a pure city view nor a pure landscape. There are images, uh, there are aspects of both um, within this single print. The forested foreground contrasts with the river and the city beyond. 
Other harbor views by Lane demonstrate his interest in foreground details and water, with the town being a relatively minor element, although very carefully and uh, meticulously drawn. Champney noted that Lane excelled in architectural views, a genre in which he had competition from other artists in his circle. Lane produced about eight prints of this genre. They vary tremendously, but his view of the Worcester House is typical. He carefully delineated different species of trees, but sparingly uses pedestrians to provide a sense of scale. The print of the Franklin House was drawn by Alexander J. Davis, who became a well-known architect. And it features a more difficult oblique view, but both are fine specimens of its type. So in this case, Lane is rather the equivalent of Davis, who actually went on for, to a career as an architect. In the 1840s, um, Lane did a, an oblique hall of, uh, an oblique view of Horticultural Hall and the spectacular depiction of the interior of Oak Hall, a men's haberdashery in Boston, that used this lithographed view as the frontispiece to an advertising pamphlet. There was no shortage of architectural views made at this time, including several of churches. The view of um, St. John's Episcopal Church in Bangor, Maine, designed by Richard Upjohn, is as carefully delineated as any of Lane's architectural prints in terms of detail. It, however, lacks contrast in tones, so it appears quite dull. And this was drawn on stone by Robert Cook and printed by Moore about 1837 as a way for the church to raise money from parishioners. The lithograph is based on a watercolor perspective, not on the actual structure. And it may be uh, that the, the way that one object derives from another from another usually results in a degraded image. Uh, there's so much lost in translation. Earlier in the 1820s, Alexander Jackson Davis produced several fine architectural renderings, including the depiction of Christ Church in Gardner, Maine, made in the late 1820s. The heavily shaded right half of the structure makes the uh, structure look far more three-dimensional in that uh, it's really a beautiful print and hand-colored as well. Champney's view of the first church in Medford also lacks much contrast in tone. It's interesting that Champney includes more landscape around the structure than Cook and Davis did in their um, church views. Likewise, Champney's residence of the late Charles Barrett in New Ipswich, New Hampshire, combines an architectural rendering of the federal-style home now owned by Historic New England and its landscape setting. I don't find this a fully satisfactory print either. I think the rendering of the trees on the hillside is quite awkward, perhaps due to a problem of scale. And of course, the house really does seem lost in the surrounding landscape. As an architectural print, it's less than successful. Images of disasters, particularly urban fires, such as the view of the great conflagration that occurred on January 14, 1837 in St. John, New Brunswick, became popular as a result of the development of commercial lithography. This print was a collaborative effort. Lane adapted sketches by Thomas H. Wentworth and his son William for this lithograph printed in Boston, probably for a Canadian audience. That should be collaborative enough. The flames whipped by a strong wind and billowing smoke are well drawn. Note the piles of furniture and belongings on the wharf. Stories of disasters were, of course, printed in newspapers, but as we know today from our shared dedication to visual media of all types, depictions render narratives more vividly and concretely than the printed word. Two other artists active at the Pendleton Moore shop during Lane's tenure, Robert Salmon and George Loring Brown, also made vivid images of urban fires, and these were used on certificates for firemen. A landscape and marine artist trained in England, Salmon is best known for his marine paintings, and he inspired, as we shall see, Lane to paint harbor views. This fire scene was printed at Pendleton's as an engraving for a fire insurance company probably in the 1830s. And it's quite possible that, of course, that he and Lane met early on um, in Lane's time in Boston. 
George Loring Brown, who drew the vignette for the Worcester Fireman's Certificate, went on to a distinguished career as an artist, spending 20 years in Europe from 1839 to 1859, painting landscapes and making etchings of the Italian countryside for American tourists. Marine disasters appealed to Lane from the outset. The burning of the packet ship Boston is Lane's earliest extant work of art dating from 1830. The watercolor is based on a sketch made by two of the passengers, Elias Davis Knight and the artist Samuel S. Osgood. The packet ship loaded with cotton was struck by lightning somewhere between Charleston, South Carolina and Liverpool and amazingly only one passenger died and I fail to understand how that was possible. It's um, really a striking image and it's worth going to Gloucester to see. It's on display. In 1841, Lane identified himself as an artist on a small trade card that he commissioned. In that year, Lane painted two views of the Cunard Liner Britannia, one of which is at, now at the Peabody Essex Museum. These paintings were publicly displayed in Boston in 1842, one at a music shop and the other at the exhibition, the first exhibition of the Boston Artists Association. His paintings began to receive public notice at this time, but he did not abandon lithography for another six years. His most dramatic ship portrait is the steam packet ship Massachusetts in a squall, November 10, 1845. Robert Bennett Forbes had already commissioned Lane to portray the ship in a standard ship portrait format, the ship in that case sailing on a placid sea, showing the smokestack for the auxiliary steam engine. Forbes was proud of the amount of sail that the ship carried, but clearly they did not fare well in a storm. This print is, however, as dramatic and vivid as the burning of St. John in its own way. I'm, also, I'm contrasting this to a, a watercolor seascape by another artist active at the Pendleton Moore shop, uh, David Claypool Johnston, who's well represented in this collection. Uh, Lane's skill at depicting ships in a heavy sea contrasts sharply to Johnston's lackluster handling of his subject. Five years older than Lane, Johnston came to Boston Having learned the engraving trade in Philadelphia, his caustic satirical prints made him enemies, and he left, Boston, left Philadelphia for Boston. And he too worked steadily for the Pendleton Moore firm and later companies as well. Like Lane, Johnston was active in the 1840s in the Boston Artists Association, and he exhibited 31 uh, watercolors and drawings here at the Boston Athenaeum over the years. The oeuvres and styles of the two artists are, for the most part, very, very different, but they do sometimes overlap, as in this pair of marine subjects. The lithographic printer and artist Ephraim Washington Bouvet commissioned Lane to produce this print, Alcohol Rocks. Although the image looks like a shipwreck, this is a temperance print. <laughs> but you have to read the fine print, right? The ship in temperance has wrecked itself on a rocky shore labeled Alcohol Rocks, and the crew of the ship, Temperance, is saving passengers. Lane was involved in other temperance projects, including making two paintings for the Gloucester 1849 Fourth of July floral procession. And this, you know, it indicates that he was, in fact, uh, involved in the social uh, reform movements of his era. He was not off in his own little ivory tower. Champney also tried his hand at a marine disaster of print. In 1840, he drew this lithograph featuring several disasters that occurred during the winter of 1839-1840. The central image, though, shows the burning of the steamship Lexington in 1840 in Long Island Sound. And I show it with a print made by Nathaniel Courier uh, of the same the same. Uh, tragedy, and this image, uh, Courier's image, was printed in several editions by him and by other printers. Champney's print, on the other hand, featured several other scenes. Two on the left relate to Gloucester, and the others depict disasters elsewhere in New England, reminding viewers that life at sea was perilous. 
Champney had a very light touch on the stone. The detailed scenes are only two or three inches across. There are lots of highlights created by minute scratching through the lithographic crayon with a needle on the stone as well as deep blacks. He was learning. It's significant that Champney doesn't mention Lane and portraiture. This is one genre in which Lane clearly did not excel. We only have this print of John Hawkins securely attributed to him. There are portraits in oil in the collection of the Cape Ann Museum of his patrons and best friends, Caroline and Joseph Stevens, Jr., but they're not signed. Prior to leaving for Europe in 1841, Cook, who had done a number of portraits for book and periodical publishers, started painting portraits. Champney in 1840 started experimenting with oils and landscapes while also drawing from casts. Lane wisely did not concentrate on this lucrative but competitive field dominated in Boston by Chester Harding, who was the leading portrait painter in the city. And a successful career as a portrait painter might have required itinerancy, uh, which would have been difficult for Lane, who was always dependent on crutches. But so the only portrait drawn on stone by Lane is of John Hawkins, a popular temperance lecturer. Uh, he copied for this print a painting by Thomas McNeil Burnham, um, who was an itinerant artist um, who worked uh, in Detroit and then came to Boston in 1840. Cook also copied portrait paintings and drawings on stone, and these are far more successful than Lane's um, attempts. And one of his finest is the portrait of Edwin Forrest, the actor. The vignette-style portrait was becoming very popular at this time, and there's an informality to it that is lacking in the more traditional rectangular formats um, seen by the uh, portrait at the, in the center. Lane's prints um, and paintings do include paintings. Um, this is uh, an unusual advertisement, though, which shows the interior of uh, a restaurant, a tavern. And I set it against a watercolor by David Claypool Johnston um, just to emphasize, I think, the ease uh, with which Johnston paints his um, figure figures and Lanes look pretty stiff, um, but it is a, a wonderful ad and a, one of really the few interiors that we have at this time of a, of a restaurant. And I love seeing the works of art hanging high on the walls, safe from any splashes or food fights. <laughs> We're in a tavern, remember. <laughs> one of the big categories of commercial uh, lithographic printing in the 1830s and 40s was sheet music. And there are many, many, many cover illustrations that really are wonderful genre scenes. Uh, and beginning in the mid-1820s, the music publishers commissioned lithographic printers to provide these images for their sheet music. One of, the, one of Lane's first prints actually was a cover for the Sicilian Vespers. At the end of the decade, Lane, Champney, and Cook received many commissions in this genre. Two of Lane's, a Yankee ship and a Yankee crew, and the Salem Mechanic Light Infantry Quickstep, both features lines of military figures that seem like so many matchsticks lined up in a row. They're hardly animated, and that is, I think, a problem for these prints. But what is important in the uh, sheet music cover for Captain Austin's Quickstep is this beautiful image of the Const USS Constitution, and we'll see that ship, um, this is in other prints, um, and then here are a group of uh, three prints of uh, soldiers and you know, military figures done by Lane, Champney, and Cook. And they, they're really very similar, very, very similar compositions. The drawing style is equivalent. Um, and, but I do love Lane's figure because he is so stylized with that kind of wasp waist and elongated legs. Champney, although he claimed to have quickly started work as a draftsman for, oriental, for ordinary commercial work, did not routinely sign lithographs until the end of his apprenticeship in 1839. But in 1838, he initialed the vignette on the cover of a piece of music, the Corsair Glee, depicting the shell and crew of the Corsair Boat Club. 
Champney's depiction of the landscape presages his excellence as a member of the Hudson River School with his multitude of paintings of the White Mountains. His interest in marine subjects is reflected in his cover design for Rockaway or on old Long Island's Seagirt Shore. And he also signed a vignette um, at the time on the very, very popular song, The Old Armchair. And in this case, he clearly copied Lane's um, far more striking uh, image, which again uses this intense dark to make the figure pop right off the page. A final cover designed by Champney adorns Wig Gathering, a piece of music published in 1840. And it's interesting to see how close the composition is to Lane's 1835 print published by William Pendleton. Lane, Champney, and Cook each produced a flurry of illustrated covers of music scores printed by Benjamin Thayer and Sharp and Michelin in 1839, 1840, and 1841. Champney and Cook did so planning to go to Europe to study. In his memoir, Champney mentioned that he and Cook worked together, quote, hoarding the little we made that we might go to Europe for study. Lane's dependence on crutches meant that he did not accompany his two companions. The music publisher, William Oakes, commissioned the artist to, brought, to provide the images. He was conveniently located near Thayer's business, explaining why Oakes commissioned so much music printing from that firm. Cook himself was an accomplished musician, playing both the pianoforte and flute, and might therefore have actually enjoyed his work for music publishers. Champney and Cook sailed from New York to Le Havre in 1841. Upon reaching Paris, they found a number of American artists and become, began studying with artists from all, art, all corners of Europe. Sadly, Cook became ill with an unspecified interest and had two surgeries. His health, um, however, did not improve, and his friends moved him to Barrière de l'Etoile in a country-like setting near today's L'Arc de Triomphe where he passed away in the fall 1843. That blew my mind. I don't think of the Arc de Triomphe as a country-like setting. His death in 1843 eclipsed a promising career as a portrait and landscape painter. Champney visited him every day and showed him sketches that he was making in Marly, Bougival, and Saint-Ouen, places where Impressionist artists <clears throat> painted in later decades. Champney thought that Cook would have become a famous portrait painter, and one of his paintings became part of the collection of Moses Kimball's in the Boston Museum, a copy of Poussin's Judgment of Solomon in the Louvre, um, although some of Kimball's paintings did enter today's Museum of Fine Arts. The whereabouts of that painting is not known. Champney remained in Europe until 1846 when he returned to Boston and took a stu studio in Boston's Tremont Temple, where many artists congregated. He no longer pursued marine subjects. Landca landscape was his genre. And some print publishers reproduced his paintings, including this stunning view of Keene, New Hampshire, and the Valley of the Ashalot after his return from Europe in 1846. The artist, Robert Salmon, was an important influence on Lane. Of Scottish birth, he was working professionally in England as early as 1800, immigrating to the, artists, uh, to the United States in 1828, settling in Boston, where he worked until 1841 or 1842 when he returned to England. He recorded in his account book that he lent one painting to Pendleton's to be copied, the Dismal Swamp Canal with Lake Drummond Hotel. And this is the print that was produced by uh, Pendleton um, sometime in the early 1830s. He also produced lithographs of harbor scenes that Pendleton printed. As John Wilberding has written, Salmon's paintings of Boston Harbor and Shoreline were among his best, whoops, and doubtless had an impact on other younger artists. Indeed, Lane copied one of his paintings, the yacht Northern Light, noting the fact on the reverse of the painting that's now in the collection of the Shelburne Museum. 
There can be no doubt of Salmon's impact on Lane's marine painting. The view of the U.S. Naval Yard in Charleston features two ships, the Columbus and the Constitution, the famous War of 1812 ship that Lane included um, in other prints. Salmon's lithograph on the left is in a linear style in comparison to the lithographs that we have already seen. The other view is a vignette for a membership certificate for the Naval, Naval Library and Institute. Again, the Constitution is featured along with the view of the Bunker Hill Monument in the distance. In 1837, Thomas Moore, the lithographic printer who bought Pendleton's business, commissioned Lane to produce this view in Boston Harbor, whose eight-man skull is visible in the center of the foreground. This print clearly shows Salmon's influence. Several years later, Lane began to produce oil paintings that were exhibited in the exhibitions of the Boston Artists Association. That year, he exhibited a painting described as a scene in Boston Harbor. He also painted Britannia in a Gale, which we've seen, now on display at the Peabody Essex. Champney that year exhibited a landscape, and Salmon is not listed as a member of the Artists Association or as an exhibitor suggesting that he had returned to England. In 1843, Lane exhibited another painting lined for a pilot in Boston Bay. So his career as a painter commenced. This 1844 view of Gloucester Harbor from Rocky, Rocky Net demonstrates his mastery of oil on canvas. I mean, this is an absolutely stunning painting. So he, he probably had painted a half a dozen landscapes before this. Maybe we could say eight or nine, but still, it's an amazing accomplishment. But Lane did not cease working lithographically. From 1844 to 14, 1848, he and John W.A. Scott, an apprentice at Pendleton's shop before Lane's arrival, formed a partnership as lithographic printers. Scott was becoming a landscape painter, but none of his landscapes were reproduced lithographically by their firm. After their partnership ended, he maintained a painting studio in Cambridge and made many trips to New Hampshire and the White Mountains where Champney lived. His style was rooted in the Hudson River School and he exhibited occasionally in Boston. Scott signed few prints and none that the pair printed, so perhaps he was responsible for the business end of the partnership. In any event, Lane signed nine prints that the firm printed. These include his view of Gloucester from Rocky Neck, taken from the same promontory as his 1844 painting. This lithograph includes many of the same features as his 1836 view of Gloucester, a beautifully modulated sky, carefully drawn foreground, but many, many more carefully drawn ships in the harbor. The firm printed the steam packet Massachusetts in a squall, which we have seen, as well as Lane's American Vessels Number no. 1, a typical ship portrait. The title of this print suggests that it's number one of a series, but no more prints in the series were published. But this is a very typical ship portrait, ship shown broadside. Um, the second ship is thrown in for good measure. The landscape artist and print publisher, Albert Conant, commissioned Lane and Scott to print views after his own sketches. Lane was an experienced hand at reproductive work like this, having copied um, one of Peter Anderson's views in the 1830s. The view of New Bedford, printed in 1845, presents a wonderful view of the harbor and port of that whaling city. Again, the foreground provides a great sense of scale, and his accurately drawn foreground emphasizes the distance between it and the city across the Acushnet River. Lane's sense of aerial perspective is very well developed. Conant commissioned Lane and Scott to print this image, view of Newburyport. This time the foreground, Salisbury, Massachusetts, is full of interesting stacks of wood useful for making staves for the kegs in the center of the foreground. And that, of course, was a necessary part of any uh, naval transport of commercial objects. And Newburyport is carefully depicted in the distance. This print was printed in color with some hand coloring added. Lane signed both of these um, prints that we've just seen. F.H. Lane from a sketch by A. Conant. 
After Lane returned to Gloucester in 1848 to uh, really begin his full-time life as a painter, Scott printed one more view by Lane, View of Providence, Rhode Island, in 1848. Although responsible for the view, Lane probably had no hand in drawing it on stone. However, one of the area newspapers enthused, this beautiful view of the city is taken from the South, which for accuracy and of detail and beauty of execution had has not its equal in city views, is now ready for subscribers and those who would wish to purchase. The price was 75 cents for a black and white print and $1 for a print printed in color. Um, I mean, a dollar in 1848 didn't mean much. Um, don't think that it's a dollar in today's currency. That would have been actually, you know, $15, $20 in today's currency, maybe more. I think what I, I've never really liked this print that much. Um, <laughs> it's, it, and I really, I, it, um, it just lacks, it doesn't have any oomph to it. And I, I don't know if it's because of the color printing or Lane really had no hand in approving it. I'm not sure, but it's, um, it's a weak print. But it's good to look at everything, right? <laughs> Lane's oeuvre includes two more masterful reproductive prints published in the 1850s, really between 1848 when he did that view and 1855. Uh, there's really nothing produced lithographically related to Lane. Lodewick H. Bradford printed two views uh, by Lane, one of Gloucester and one of Castine, Maine, and he printed both of those um, in Boston. By this time, Lane's ability as an artist was widely recognized and acclaimed. These prints, probably not drawn on stone by Lane, but it, they could have been drawn on stone by Lane, but I can't imagine he would have spent the amount of time in Boston required to do it while he was trying to establish himself and was establishing himself as a painter. But they, these two remain splendid examples of reproductive prints. The lithographer replicated Lane's interest in the interaction of sky, light, and water while providing accurate delineations of the ports that Lane knew so well. Whether Lane drew them on stone or not, his expertise in portraying light and water makes these um, two prints very special. The print of Castine actually uh, uh, it's very well documented at the Cape Ann Museum, and on display right now is the pencil drawing of the town of Castine itself. And it's just about exactly the same size as that part of the town shown in the lithograph, and it's just this little tiny, um, it's wide, but the, it's just the skyline and the buildings, and there are little annotations about make this taller, make this darker, and it's uh, very seldom in studies of American lithography do you have the pencil source for the print. So it's quite amazing. And then this is Lane's um, lithograph after Lane's view of Gloucester in 1859. And again, you know, did he do it on stone himself or not? We don't know, but it's really a, a stunning print. And, a wonderful um, sort of farewell to his beloved town. By the mid-1840s, other skilled artists such as Edwin Whitefield and John William Hill had started to produce handsome city views. Whitefield arrived in the United States in 1837 as a trained landscape and flower painter. He began producing city views in the mid-1840s, just at the time that Lane and Scott's firm started working, and at the time that Lane bows out of this reprodu re, you know, producing city views for reproductive purposes. And um, Whitefield's lithographs were uh, certainly commended for their documentary value. Hill, the son of an engraver, produced 27 views between 1834 and 1855 some of which were lithographed, some of which were engraved at great expense. 
the um, Mead Art Museum has one of these fabulous prints, and it's wider than this. It's one of the biggest prints in the collection and was quite stunning, and it was finding that print, my insistence, oh, can't we just see that one? Um, that brought it up out of deep, deep storage, and when Lizzie saw it, she asked, do we have enough other prints to do a show around it? If so, we'll get it conserved and get it up on the wall. It was really a wonderful bit of inspiration. But it's, I think it's the entry of artists like Whitefield and Hill into the genre of print production that might well have spurred Lane towards concentrating on marine painting, a field in which he had no rivals at the time. In addition, Lane's limited mobility would have been a challenge had he chosen to pursue depictions of the cities, hills, mountains of the Northeast the way that Champney, Whitefield, and Hill could do. In many ways, the careers of Champney, Lane, and Scott ran a parallel course. They were men basically self-taught and self-motivated to become artists using their innate skills honed by becoming lithographic draftsmen. Lane stayed with lithography for a longer time than Champney and certainly left a more substantial legacy in that medium. Champney lived until 1907 when he died at the age of 80 and he painted landscapes of the White Mountains for decades. Scott died at the age of 92 in 1907. Their long lives meant that they left behind more numerous bodies of work more work than Lane, who died in 1865 at the age of 61. But their work today is not, as, not so highly regarded. Today, as in the 19th century, Lane's work is valued more highly by critics, not to mention the art market. One critic wrote of a lithographed sheep portrait, ship portrait in 1843, quote, as a specimen of nautical beauty, it is worthy of admiration from all who delight in viewing the specimens of men's handicraft. Another critic wrote a decade later, Lane was the best marine painter in the country. This critic described Lane as, quote, a man walking with difficulty, supported by crutches, hard-handed, browned by the sun and exposure, with a nose indicating less the artistic sensibility than the artist resolution, and an eye that shines clear as a hawk's under overhanging brows. This is the bodily portraiture of a man who is a master in his art." End quote. Lane's prints are special because of his careful observation and portrayal of the physical world, his understanding of perspective, and his knowledge of every piece of equipment on the ships he so loved to, to depict. In the end, Lane went with what he knew best, and this single-minded dedication resulted in his eventual success as an artist. Thank you. <laughs>